0: Welcome to the Philosophy of Psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. Lecture 16, Creativity and Resilience. This first little bit of the lecture is from a book by Jack Block. The second bit of the lecture is almost entirely from the article NAFO. And regression in the service of the ego that you would have done in seminars last week um i'm going to bring in perhaps a little bit more about winnicott than nafo did but it's you know it's stuff that you should easily be able to read if this kind of thing fascinates you okay um the first bit's from a book by jack block called personality as an affect processing system he's a kind of mainstream psychologist but i absolutely love his take On resilience, I think it's a very psychoanalytic notion, so he'd probably be horrified to hear that, but no, I don't think so. He uses words like ego control in his writing, no problem. Okay, so in our culture, people talk a lot about adaptation to stress as though that's all that you can do with it, as though all you can do with it is cope and modify yourself and you know knuckle down and make life kind of harder and particularly in western cultures ego control is really positively viewed you know all those extreme sports and extreme games you know where you push yourself to your limits no matter the muscle damage or the ego damage when you're being humiliated and shouted at and things like that for being slightly curvier than you know our culture suddenly decides you should be etc okay so in our culture ego control it really is very positively viewed But there are lots of behaviours that are quite socially untroublesome. You know, the noisy little kid in the class who disrupts the class is seen as a hassle. The person who quietly is dying inside silently and miserable is not seen as a hassle. But actually, that sort of dying inside, those sort of internalising behaviours may nonetheless be just as maladaptive. And in the literature, you'll see there's internalising, that's depression, beating yourself up, anxiety. Um, Externalising is, you know, violence, acting out, damaging property, um, drinking, driving fast cars, that kind of thing. And insufficient control... Like, we all know that's a problem, and the newspapers certainly tell us that's a problem. Um, oh, if people are beating up their wives, restrict alcohol, as if that's the problem with domestic violence. I don't think so. It's certainly a factor, but it's certainly not the cause. It's because the cause is rather more complex. So people target things like alcoholism, drug abuse, sexual promiscuity. And sure, they may all illustrate insufficient self-control, but they may not. They may reflect something else entirely. Over-control, though, is actually less recognized as a problem. And I think this is one of Jack Block's you know, points of fascination, and he's one of the only writers I've ever found who writes about over-control. People that are teetotalers of alcohol, have you actually seen the stats on that? People that never drink ever and never have don't actually live longer. Like, it's not correlated with longevity, quite interesting. I mean, really, getting smashed all the time is certainly not going to help your longevity either. And it may not be the alcohol. It may be the personality attributes that influence, you know, um, your behavioural style that makes the difference. Absolute abstainers from all culturally available drugs or individuals who are very late or never start their sexual lives appear to be rigid individuals who are uneasy with their emotions and lead relatively joyless existences, but because they don't trouble anyone, often they're overlooked. They're not seen as as something that is meriting attention. One of the things that I do research on, like real, you know, empirical mainstream kind of research is resilience. I'm very interested in elite sports players, I'm not really interested in sports, if if I could just be honest, I really hate sport, (laughs) but I'm really interested in people who play elite sport and who do extreme things like ballet and yoga and all that kind of stuff, Um, and and so I'm very interested in in what resilience is. It's It's a term that a number of my students over the years have wanted to do research on, and it's a very hard one to do research on, because resilience is always relative to context, and because there's no stable profile, no stable profile that tells you who's resilient. Because what may, might make you resilient in one context might lead you to die in another. So, in other words, to be really resilient, you've got to be at a sort of meta level of ability. You've got to be able to shift your skill repertoire. So, sometimes you've got to be able to chill out. Sometimes you've got to be able to keep on keeping on no matter what. But in certain instances, you know, sticking with the same skill set is not going to be resilient. Resilient is like being able to be on a mountaintop, looking down on the rice paddy fields of all the different skill sets that you've got and going, I think paddy field number one is right for this situation. And that meta ability, I actually think, is, is what resilience is. It's almost like the observing ego in psychoanalysis, that capacity to to reflect on what your skill repertoire is. You know, when I was talking last week about face work, part of what face work is, is to know when to hide your feelings and when you don't need to. Or, you know, to be able to sort of turn face work on and off so that you still get the signal function of your emotions so that you're not estranged from your own feelings. And this is how Block defines resilience, he says, It's a characteristic ability, so you know, some people have got it more than others, but it's about being dynamic and about progressively. So you don't just, okay, I'm gonna adapt dynamically and that's it, I'm not gonna adapt after 30. It's like you've got to progressively keep adapting to stress. And yet you, you can't rehearse for how to do it. Sometimes you're just caught on the hop and you've just got to do the best you can. And so it's about spontaneity. It's about trusting yourself that you've got something in your repertoire that's going to work now in this moment. And that's what I mean about it being relative to context. You've got to be very attuned to what the existing circumstances are. And there are all sorts of benefits if you can manage to be present, to truly see what the circumstances in front of you are and what they mean so what resilience entails depends on contexts and certain contexts seem to demand a sort of tighter more directed organisation of the personality if it's going to be mastered i don't know if you would say hscs like that but perhaps you really sort of need to sort of get a bit organised to be able to survive so that you you know keep exercising a bit you keep seeing friends a bit that kind of stuff so you don't completely go under okay so sometimes you've got to be pretty organised to to survive certain contexts but other contexts demand a looser or less directed organization of the individual's personality in the interests of surmounting or easing a problem. Like sometimes if you are in a, in a sort of situation of interpersonal conflict, the best thing might be to do nothing, to let time pass, you know, to let people get out of, get out of the state they're in into a different state and then talk. But you know that thing, i just got to sort it out now. But you're both really tired and wound up. You know what I mean? Sometimes actually you just go, okay, speak about it tomorrow or next week. See you later. But there are people who can't do that. Who can't sort of you know, yeah, hold back. Yeah. Sometimes if you're getting into an argument, the best thing that can happen is to really let the other person finish what they're about to say. They're like, Waiting to get your you know really fabulous next point in okay and to let it be a bit more playful and go oh yeah you might have a point there i had not looked at it that way yeah that could be the case you know loosening things up a little bit and you've probably all gone to dinner parties where it's kind of like a military endeavor it's like have you finished that yet because i want to bring in the next course it's just it's ready you know i'm going i want to wash that plate you know it's not exactly the right way of conducting yourself in certain contexts I wish I was more like that, you can tell I'm envious. I really would love a bit more of that personality style, don't have it. Okay, I'm much more like this, I'm afraid, although it was hard run, it was hard run, I was definitely much more wound up and um, yeah, structured when I was uh, a young student, I must say, I was a bit of a girly spot, but I, I got much more regressed as I as I grew older, I'm afraid. Okay, So I'm a bit of a fan of regression in the service of the ego, as you'll probably gather. I want to give you an example from something that will seem truly zany to you and i want to reassure you that i have not gone insane when i show you the next slide okay one of my fascinations in the early 90s was connectionism and i was really interested in people that tried to model mental processes in the computer network systems i never actually did it myself but i was around a lot of people that would program up the computers and there was one of the notions there that I just have never been able to live my life without. And that's the notion of a local minimum. Okay, a local minimum. I'm going to explain what that is to you. Okay, so let me give you a kind of a, a sort of quite pathetic example of this. Imagine that you're a heterosexual woman living in a particular culture where most of the guys that are really intelligent and clever and your age are gay, all right? And you stay there. And you know, you're 36, you're 37, you're 42, you're 43. It's not looking good. You thought you might possibly have children, but no, you know. And then what happens? You go on a road trip, or you go on the net, or you start going to places that you wouldn't normally go, right? And you're really uncomfortable. These are not your kind of people. You don't go on the net, et cetera. Then suddenly, you find this whole world where there are intelligent, sensitive people that are heterosexual. You could reverse it. You could be a gay person who's surrounded by heterosexual people, etc. And Then you've got to accept some kind of discomfort, some kind of not feeling like yourself, an increase in error, if you like, to find where you're really best suited in life. Or you're in a bad job. But if you stay there, because you can't look for a job or you can't accept something that doesn't pay as well, so you spend the rest of your life unhappy in a highly paid job. Because you couldn't accept an increase in error, namely a lower wage initially, even, to get something that's closer to your heart. So in other words, sometimes to get out of a local minimum, a local minimum, one that's a hanging valley that's not really the best solution. But if you keep operating in terms of the principles that you're using now, which is I won't accept an increase in error. I must be rational. I must be able consciously to specify rationally my goals and my sub-goals before I take a step. You're going to stay in the local minimum. If you go, oh, I don't know, I'm just going to try something, it's kind of kicking the television, you know, turning your computer off and on because you don't know what's gone wrong, and then boom, you're in the local minimum. So that's that's what I sort of see as regression in the service of the ego. It's got two phases, you see. Initially, you've got to move away from your hard-won adult, high-functioning, rational status. You've got to become a little bit irrational. You've got to allow a loosening of associations, which is what I think is good exam technique, bizarrely enough. You've got to sort of say, this may not be relevant, but can I make it relevant? And why do I think it might be relevant? Why did I write it down underneath that short answer question? Oh, there is a link. Oh my God, I can see how that fits, right? In other words, you you accept an initial move away from rationality, but the end result is much greater rationality, a much more satisfying, much more coherent um, kind of end result. So that's what I'm going to be describing in a number of ways about art and about problem solving in today's lecture and creativity. Okay. So regression is required to get out of the local minimum. You've got to accept an increase in error you retreat away from what seems like the best solution you allow a little more error to enter into the equation but it's in order to reach the best solution you may not there may not be a better solution but if you've never really looked you won't know and some people can't allow themselves that it's too scary believe me some personality styles control is it and any kind of loss of control is utterly terrifying to them. And I'm not being in the least bit judgmental in saying that because it's utter terror for them. So, to reach an optimal solution, you're not able sometimes to be ra- rational every inch of the way. Like you are not able to be rational throughout the entire process. Part of the process, and I think this is definitely true of being a good therapist negative capability, where you just go, I don't know what's happening here, but I'm feeling X, right? Part of the process is tolerating a little more irrationality and uncertainty, and that can be a real challenge. And there are big differences between people. That's something that I talk about in my third-year personality course. Individuals vary massively in their ability or their affectively controlled willingness to permit these lower, less contained things that are seen normatively by culture as more primitive or childlike or irrational. And some people just cannot permit these levels of personality organisation to operate at all. I remember once describing to a friend, I've got this favourite spot that I really love to go in um, northern New South Wales, and it's got a creek that at evening runs out to the ocean And it runs really, really fast, and it's incredibly powerful at those moments. And particularly with king tides and things, you can be really taken for quite a ride if you just completely relax and allow your lungs to be quite full of air so that you just get carried by the river. And I remember describing one of my friends, and she visibly shuddered when I told her that. Like the notion of giving up control in that way was just terrifying to her. Whereas for me, it was like, it was a challenge, but it was a real delight. Okay, so that kind of letting go and emotionally being open to, you know, it was wonder and awe and interest and excitement. All the positive affects are the exploratory affects. You know, anxiety makes you narrow in. You look for threat. You look for the repetition of, of threats you've already experienced. And you're really vigilant to threat positive affects, curiosity, interest, and surprise, you're flaky. You're open to anything. Oh, look at that bird with red under its wing. You know, you're just completely, ah, oh, very, very childlike. Seen seems quite primitive, but also potentially very creative. So it changes over people, that ability to let yourself go, and it changes over time. When I'm stressed or I've had tough stuff happening, you know, I feel like everything in my personality is just wound tight. And I don't have those degrees of freedom to allow myself to regress either spontaneously or in deliberate ways. It's very difficult for people sometimes to imagine going on holiday they take their work with them, and I'm very guilty of that. Partly it's because there's not really a, a firm divide between my work and what I like, which is always a good and bad thing, but it, it's it's sometimes very difficult to let go and say I'm actually just not going to you know, do my work. And sometimes it's uh, very difficult for you to release what has been restrained. Like for some people, if they've been very sad for a long time and they've had to muscle through and not show their pain. It's actually quite difficult for them to weep and sometimes incredibly uh, healing almost, uh, to weep to exhaustion. And people get a bit freaked. It's like, I'm weeping, but I don't know why. I haven't got any cognitive content. Well, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? It's like there are unconscious processes happening there anyway. But some people, very, very difficult willingly to release what has been restrained. <laughs> you see it in the tightness of the jaw, you know, and the forehead, it really shows on the face in terms of long-term expressions. And for some people, it's very difficult to return to freer associations, and yet that you know, psychoanalysis could not really exist without free associations. And you probably saw. It, oh, some of you haven't done this week's tutorial yet, have you? There's a really cool case study of a guy called Max in, the case, in today's reading or this week's reading. And um, he's, uh, he makes a terrible blunder in his uh, therapy session. Instead of saying um, Scylla and Charybdis, which are the two monsters in Greek mythology, he says Sylvia and the Choropodist. Okay, which is a, makes his analyst weep with laughter, which is not such a great move if you're a therapist, can I say. It's kind of potentially very shaming of the client. But what that undoes and what that releases from both the analyst and the client into the therapeutic session is truly remarkable. So free associations are not always like, you know, Freud, okay, lie back on the sofa, You mentioned plastic sandals in your dream. There have been plastic sandals in five of your dreams. Could you tell me, you know, what do plastic sandals mean to you? And the patient lies back. Well, my mother used to always wear them because they're a very cheap form of footwear and they stopped her feet from getting sore on the pebbles of the river and blah blah blah, you know? So, in other words, those free associations are the stuff of psychoanalysis. You know, when I was telling you a couple of weeks ago that the client feels that Oh, this session's just been tangents. I'm so sorry. I've just been going off on tangents, and of course, yours going. Hmm, I haven't been tangents because the thing that follows the other is very revealing. You know, it's one of the ways that I, I really enjoy reading essays is I can I can follow the progression of a person's thought of why they're saying that that thing next. So to return to free associations is something that's very difficult for some people, and yet it's crucial for dream interpretation, etc. Um, and it's also really important for creativity. That capacity for an almost willful, playful cognitive reversion is important. And many hunches that a person has about what's essential for their creativity. Include such a notion of regression. If you've got friends, I've got friends who are filmmakers, and if you sort of were to say to them, "I don't think that should be the opening scene," or you know, "Why did you have her dressed in, in you know, green at the ocean and um, you know, sort of scene?" They'll be furious with you. But of course, it has to be green. It couldn't, it couldn't be anything else but green. they have absolutely got this creative hunch that's quite different from rational thought. So this. What's seen as insufficient self-control by more moralistic sort of approaches within culture may actually provide the basis for spontaneity, which I, I've told you is a crucial part of resilience. Flexibility, also a crucial part of resilience, but also for things like expressions of interpersonal warmth. Do you remember the um, image that, was, that moved me quite a lot where there was a little um, girl from, I think, Uganda who cuddled the queen? And the Queen cuddled her back. And I was reminded of when Paul Keating accidentally touched the Queen's back. And he was called the Lizard of Oz for that because it was so forbidden to touch the Queen, you know. And yet it was a spontaneous gesture on his part, which was not accepted. And yet the spontaneous gesture of this child cuddling the Queen was accepted in certain ways. Um, so, there's, sometimes this insufficient self-control is important for expressions of interpersonal warmth, certainly for openness to experience, and for creative recognitions. And this is me quoting Jack Block. There are many contexts wherein spontaneity is appropriate and desirable, where self-control may be maladaptive and spoil the experience, and spoil the savorings of life, and may even spoil reproductive fitness. Okay, so if you can't be intimate and let go, there may not be that sort of orgasmic closeness with another. Um, he says, although the ability to resist distractions in many contexts is good, to delay gratifications, one of the crucial things our culture requires of us, they obviously have adaptive implications, and Walter Mischel says, you know, that is the major cultural achievement that's required of us, inhibition. There can also be an excessive degree of control of interferences. And this can lead to sort of perseverative, inattentive, narrowly focused, delaying behaviors that are also maladaptive, but in quite different ways. I don't know if you know Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know it? Do you know the Vogons? Yeah. It's like there's that great line about the Vogons. They're not evil. They just demand everything in triplicate. And there's there's a particularly funny skit that I think I've seen on YouTube where, you know, if your grandmother is being eaten by by the monster X from the planet Y, they won't go to save her unless you've got the form in two weeks in advance and in triplicate. You know, that's a kind of like the dysfunctional system things that you could never have anticipated that are emergencies that require action now. Sorry. The bureaucracy cannot adapt so you don't want to be like a, a personal bureaucracy you don't want a personality that's like a bureaucracy with so many um, forms of and requirements so an inability to regress or to receive artistic messages is quite a sign about a personality and what's interesting to me is it was true of freud he really you know, had a pretty tight rein on himself, quite obsessive. And what was interesting, theoretically, was it meant he never, ever saw the significance of the pre-Oedipal phase for mysticism. Because for him, religion was about Yahweh, the superego, the stern god. He never really, until the end of his life when he was writing to Romain Rolland, he never really got into that oceanic feeling, you know that kind of merger and union with the external environment or with others, and in fact, much like Plato, who said that you know music and musicians should be banned from the philosopher's kingdom, Freud also says that his mind rebels against being moved by a thing without m- knowing why I am thus affected and what it is that affects me, so he wouldn't really. Be keen on music, because as, as you, know, you, you know, you don't quite know why a piece of music affects you and moves you in the way it does, or why you love a piece of um, art or a painting, or why you hate a painting. when I was young, there was a sculpture that was always being destroyed just outside my university. Someone had put it there and like every every six weeks or so, someone would just take a a hammer to it and smash it to bits and the artist would recreate it. I'm not quite sure what was going on, but it intrigued me. It it provoked very strong responses. So in a sense, art is kind of like a a riddle in a way. And when um, artistic creations are made, Um, they are sort of like unsolved riddles. And we look at them sometimes in puzzlement. Like, I imagine you've had that experience. You go in and there's a canvas that's, and the whole canvas is painted red and it's floating or something and you go, right. And a common thing is my three-year-old daughter could have done that. Like, you know, there is this feeling that the sheer physicality of reproducing that, a child could have done it. But, of course, sometimes it's actually because of what it means to the art world at that moment and and its significance that actually contextualises the work of art. But this intellectual bewilderment is actually quite important. The fact that you go, I can't rationally see what this is about, it bewilders me. That may actually be part of what it's doing to you. It's sort of saying to you, put aside that need to understand already, put that aside, and be open to what the work of art is doing now to you. And Freud actually uh, speaks about this in a very beautiful little uh, essay. It's tiny. If any of you want it, let me know. I'll put it online. And it's called The Two Principles of Mental Functioning. And what he's writing about is Secondary process thought, which is rational, logical, causal, temporally sequenced, you know, A follows B follows C, okay, versus primary process where there's no rules, there's no logic, there's no negation, as you know, and that's what dreams are all about, obviously, primary process. And to some extent, when we are acting symptomatically, Do you know when we're we're being transferential or when we lose our core, or when we act out, we are being dominated by primary process thought to an extent. You know, like if someone says something quite innocent and we interpret it as an insult, that can actually be that our internal reality is being projected onto the external world and we're not actually reality testing well. Did that person really mean that? Or is that coming... From my fears, my anxieties, my fantasies, if you like. So the primary and secondary process thought is always a part of our functioning, and we can never be quite sure which one's in the dominant position. So what Freud says is the artist finds a way of returning from the world of fantasy back to reality with his special gifts. He molds his fantasies, into a new reality or moulds her fantasies into a new reality. So it's not just like having a psychotic breakdown and not being able to tell what's real and what's not real, what's part of your fantasy versus what's part of external reality. It's about allowing that kind of controlled regression, having quite a creative sort of tumultuous phase, and then bringing back those products into your normal way of functioning, you know, it might be one thing to sort of think, oh, you know, I had a dream that I could, um, you know, build a, a staircase that looks like the DNA ring, Do you know, great idea. But then you've got to go, okay, so what kind of concrete's going to be able to bear human weight? And how am I going to get, you know, steel reinforcing to twist in that way? In other words, you're going to have to be really rational and practical to bring that vision into a reality. So other people who go, Huh? (laughs) Why? You know, but but you're very excited by it, like it's because it's manifesting something about your inner reality or psychic reality, in a way that's exciting to you, and it's making something concrete, quite literally, making something concrete about your inner world, and quite strangely, that can be a very interesting thing to find a way of dialoguing or relating to your own creative productions. And that's something I'm going to be picking up on quite a lot. Because in a sense, that's what happens in Transparence. Because if I really script an analyst into acting out some schemas, scripts, and fantasies that, from my childhood, I'm almost like the artist who's reshaping a bit of reality so that it fits my fantasy a bit more. And then I can sort of control it and see what I'm dealing with in some ways. I hope that's not too abstract for you, but it's kind of like it's making more real something that's going on within you. This is a very important phase um, if you go on to do an honours thesis or if you're working with a supervisor. Sometimes you've got great ideas in mind about a project, but until you can actually commit it in some rough way to paper to get that other person to be able to share your fantasy or share your project or share your understanding and go oh, I don't think it'll work because you would have difficulty with the design or, oh, that would work if you got this sample. Until you can make it manifest and get other people to join in in some ways, sometimes you can't bring about um, those uh, fantasies, those uh, visions of the future. So for Freud, every fantasy is a wish fulfillment. Every time you turn away from a bit of reality and imagine it differently, you're correcting an unsatisfying portion of reality. So, in other words, this is not adaption. This is not adaption. It's like, I'm not going to adapt to that reality because I hate that reality. I'm going to imagine a different way and then I'm going to try and make that different way real. Like with the Dutch when they, you know, demolished a whole lot of their roads to introduce cycle paths because kids were being killed by the volume of cars in small, sort of medieval civic centers okay fantastic stuff you yeah. wouldn't it be great if Sydney had cycle puffs etc so in other words an artist's, an artist's creative abilities make it possible to link fantasy with reality to make that link to make that connection and one of the things you know in that first reading that we did for this course civilized sexual morality and modern nervous illness and in that paper Freud says that the worst aspect of our culture is that it requires the same renunciation of all of us in other words real high civilization requires that we all are monogamous we don't have sex outside of marriage and we only have sex for procreation okay in in the most extreme sort of moral version right and some of us can't do that and some of us can And for the people who can do it, sweet. They're going to fit into society really readily. And for people that can't, they've got a really difficult path ahead of them. They're always going to be sort of clashing with moral standards. They're going to feel a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, a lot of pain. Because they can't fit in, in one way or another. And and interestingly enough, what our culture does is it has this special little niche, if you like, and lots of people swim towards it quickly in life. I want to be an artist because then you get to sort of splash around with paints and have unusual working hours and you don't have to dress well and you don't have to, you know, power dress and all that kind of stuff. So in other words, and Freud and a lot of people, Hannah Siegel, et cetera, now, for say, an artist can't come to terms with the instinctual renunciation that's required by reality. And what's interesting is that what they capture in their works of art speak to us. Like people who read books about other people having affairs or betrayals or whatever, it's like there wouldn't be a market for it if some of us didn't feel the same dissatisfactions. So the fact that those works of art can speak to people is tapping into shared dissatisfactions. It may only be Virginia Woolf, who's writing about how horrible it is um, to be a woman and not to be allowed into universities. Okay, But it, there were a lot of women that thought, yeah, it's actually very tough. There's not real recognition of women's intellectual abilities or creativity. And David Byrne writing about, you know, being a some sort of sensitive, thoughtful, creative, slender guy when the kind of ideal of his day was kind of, you know, macho and muscled. You know, it's like there can kind be of dissatisfactions that you, you want another way of being. And that dissatisfaction is part of reality too. Because there's heaps of people that are feeling dissatisfactions about certain things. And it's whether or not you can capture that in a way that hints at the dissatisfaction But leaves it vague enough, like a projective test, so that you can project your own dissatisfaction into it, or you can project your reality into the work of art. And you notice that with song lyrics, they'll often be sort of hinting at uh, certain themes, but they won't get too precise so that you can link up, yeah, that was what my breakup was like, or yeah, that's what I feel like when I'm sort of riding on a motorbike or whatever. So it's got to be sort of vague enough to allow the other to participate in uh, the recognition of the work of art. Now, one of the things that artists really hate about psychoanalysis and they really hate psychoanalysis is that they cannot bear the fact that psychoanalysis takes a work of art as a symptom as a sign of a disorder and they treat it as they would any other symptom and they try to sort of work out what the artist's neurosis is what is it about their childhood that made them do this work of art Um, And so Hannah Siegel, who's a a commentator on the work of Melanie Klein, um, she says there are actually huge differences between an artist and a neurotic And that the artist often has an extremely acute sense of reality. They're very attuned to what's going on. I had a friend who's who's a filmmaker who was around at my place, and I had to go and just grab something because I was going out for a coffee. And then I came back and she goes, you have... Ticking clocks. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I, I would never have noticed that. In the digital age, you have ticking clocks. She says, you are know, completely in touch with the reality of my house. No, not distracted by color or anything, or my books. It's not interesting my books, it's interest in my ticking clocks. And very aware of what's internal and external, because you know, that boundary between what's you and what's not you, that's actually critical. You blur that boundary. Yes, it can be pleasurable, but only if you've already got quite a well-developed sense of what's internal and external. That blurring, if you've got a psychosis, is not at all pleasurable. Letting go of a distinction between self and other or self and world is very pleasurable. But not having a distinction is quite different. So having an awareness of what's internal and external is, is definitely a part of the artistic sensibility. So in other words, the artist knows... This is my fantasy, and that's reality. Whereas in our moments when we're being really neurotic, we don't realize that we're seeing the world through our own scripts, schemas, projections, transferences. We just think this is reality. And so, and if we're really furious at someone, and we've actually projected our own failings into that other, we don't recognize that. We think we're just really furious with that other person because they're a pain in the teeth. So in other words... When you're in your neurotic moments, or if you're deeply neurotic, you don't know that you've split off, denied, repressed, or acted out your fantasy. So you haven't got that. In that moment, you haven't got that awareness of either what's internal and external, or you haven't got awareness of different self-states, which is something I'll pick up on next week. So a firm sense of reality in terms of what's possible and what's not in terms of the material you're working with is what artists are great at. Like they know the limits of paper clay, they know how to work with the materials they work with, whereas the neurotic tends to use material in quite a magical sort of way. I don't know if you know that Leonard Cohen song about um, that voodoo doll, you can stick the pins in all you like, it doesn't even look like me, he says. You know, But that kind of magical use of material is quite, quite neurotic. And um, work enables the artist to have and to maintain relationships to others. And that's the crucial thing. It's like, if you've got crazy projects, but you manage to get everybody else involved in them and working with them too, they're not quite as crazy. Do you know, it's because you, you've got other people to get involved and believe in you and possibly get ARC grants and all that kind of stuff, compared to the neurotics fantasies, which tend to actually interfere with good relationships and cause interpersonal difficulties. There are also quite strong commonalities between the artist and the neurotic, and I would recommend a little paper called Why We Sing the Blues by Verhaag, who's a, a Belgian writer, um, who says... What's interesting is that even if we create or get the inspiration for our blues songs from having been really depressed when our dogs left us and our love has gone to someone else and our car's broken down and, you know, yeah, we, when we then turn it into a song and sing it, it's, it's something pleasurable and everybody loves listening to the blues. So obviously there's something about the transformation of the depressed affect in the artistic creation that makes other people able to share it. So sure, there certainly is unresolved depression in some artists. There certainly is in some artists the constant threat of the collapse of their internal world. And you will see it, people get quite fevered when they're bringing a project to a close just before an exhibition. And that's often why they weep, you know, when there's an opening speech or something like that, because they're just so exhausted and so relieved that that it's happened, I suppose. But and this is very important, you've got to also have a greater capacity for tolerating anxiety and depression, like for you to really be able to write in a moving way about depression or mourning or grief or what terrifies you you've actually got to be able to really sustain a relationship with that rather than run from it like I do right I hate horror films I'm terrified by violence I haven't got that I can't sustain that. I go the manic defense I just run yeah and I'm sure there's some of us that I'm brave in other ways but not in those ways okay so you've got to really be able to tolerate anxiety and depression rather than just take flight from it and pretend it doesn't exist or rub it out in some ways so the aim of the artist is to produce something in us. It's like, yes, it's the artist's subconscious, it's the artist's fantasy, and they've shaped a bit of reality. But what they want to produce is that when you're witnessing what they've made, that they awaken in you the same mental constellation that they had at the moment that they created that work of art. Now, sometimes that can be truly terrifying have you ever seen a movie called A Naked? No? You, you know in Harry Potter, you know the guy Lupin that was the werewolf? This this movie, Naked, is, is the, totally stars the guy Lupin. He is just remarkable. He does this monologue about the failings of, of culture, and it's just completely entertaining. But at the end of it, and I won't tell you the end of it, you're left feeling slightly chilled at what this person's life will be and you've you've been given such a sort of an inside view of what it's like to be on the fringes and on the edges of certain cultures and subcultures. So what Freud says the artist wants to produce in us is an unconscious identification with them. So you feel for a moment what it's like to have been them. And that can be quite scary in some ways, because sometimes it's quite cruel. There was a a work of art, um, I remember, that really horrified me. Um, I can't remember which country it was in. I think it was a South American artist, and it might have been on display in New York. But it was actually a dog, and they said, do not feed the dog. And the work of art was that the dog died over the course of the exhibition, because people obeyed. Ah, I don't know. I hate that kind of stuff. Sorry to have told you about it. I always feel bad even giving you the example. I hope I would have fed the dog if I, or done something. But you just don't know, do you? Because you, you do tend to be quite reverent around works of art. I think John Lennon was the one who um, started going out with Yoko Ono because he walked in and she had on display a work of art, just a green apple, and he picked it up and took a bite out of it and put it back, which I think is sometimes the right attitude. <laughs> That was Lecture 16 from the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis, presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie-Peterson. The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon.